Good morning. Um, my name is Kyle. I'm the pastor of community and discipleship here at Redeemer. Glad you are here. Fall is in full throttle right now, so flannel and pumpkin spice and jeans and sweaters and all that is in form right now. But um, if you have a Bible, turn to Galatians 5, 1 through 15. We're looking at this passage. Uh, if you don't have a Bible, there should be one near you on the floor. And if you would like a Bible, we have some in the foyer that are yours for free. We would really love for you to have a copy of God's Word and uh, to look at it other than, than just church. Um, so, but we're looking at Galatians 5, 1 through 15. This is a very, if you are a Christian in here um, who have read your Bible in a, uh, somewhat, you will know that this is a very popular verse in the book of Galatians. I would say probably one of the bigger, bigger verses in Galatians, uh, I think of two, would be Galatians 2.20. For I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of Man who gave himself for me and loved me. So we have that verse. But then I would say one of the more well-known verses is Galatians 5.1. And we're going to be looking at Galatians 5.1-15. Um, for freedom... Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. This is a very popular verse. To be honest with you, I have deep feelings and emotions about this verse. This verse has meant a lot to me, uh, starting in my conversion in college when I became a Christian, and so I'm excited to, to really talk about it. And as I have studied it, it has been tremendously helpful in shaping. But the question is, the question that the Apostle Paul gives us is freedom. This is a resounding theme that you're gonna see in Galatians 5, but more so in the book of Galatians at large. But what is freedom, all right? This is a huge question. It's a big open-ended question. What is freedom? How would you define freedom? The modern man, the modern mind would say that freedom today is the absence of restrictions on my ability to choose or desire. So anything that impedes that ability, well, I can't be free, so get rid of it. I'm later gonna show how that's not true. But that's what we would define as freedom today. But freedom, I would say, in the Western world has been the dominant value that I think that has shaped who we are as a people, how we think about life, how we have a democracy, everything. It's the air we breathe is freedom. You even know if you have been following the NBA right now, this is a, a, a very hot topic right now going on in China and the NBA. Um, there is a lot that is at stake there, and a big central theme and subject is freedom. What is freedom? But freedom has even infiltrated our, our movies, our cinema, and even our history is, is, is fraught with it. One of my second favorite movie in, <laughs> that I've seen is Braveheart. Uh, William Wallace, that Scottish revolutionary who can just rock a mullet. Uh, I tell you, it gets me every time, but he <clears throat> is a revolutionary. His whole life is dedicated to secede from England, to get away from the tyranny of, of England and the king, and he's, <laughs> give it away, but he is captured, and he is being tortured. It's, it came out in 94, okay? So if you're mad, I'm sorry. Um, he's being tortured, and, and one of the king's majesties just says, kiss the royal robe. Just kiss it, and we will end your pain. And then those bagpipes go, and he screams out, what? Freedom. Freedom! And then the bagpipes go, and then every man in here cries, 
You just don't want to admit it, but it's true. At least I do. Um, Patrick Henry, the start of, of America, right? When we were thinking, when the American Revolution was at its very uh, start, Patrick Henry, the, the, the lawyer in the Virginia Commons, basically arguing that we need to go to war, that we need to prepare ourselves for war, has this famous speech, but he says, what, give me liberty or give me death. Uh, an incredible movie that's a very graphic and hard movie to watch, but nonetheless is a, a great movie, is the movie Amistad. Amistad came out in 1997. I would encourage you to watch it. Uh, it is about the horrors of the African trade. And what happens is that these people are ripped from their home, are put on a slave ship to go be slaves. They mutiny. They killed the people on the ship, but then they're found out at sea. And so the question is, are these people going to be released to be free back at their, where they came from? Are they going to be thought as salvage? What's going to happen? But then a brilliant man who did not speak English but was captured, started to pick pieces of the English language and basically came out with three words. And then the trial, if you remember this movie, Cinque stands up in chains and says what? Give us free. Give us free. It's so powerful. Shawshank Redemption, when he crawls through the, I can't remember, I can't do the Morgan Freeman voice, but he said, you know, but that man crawled through two miles of sewage, you know, and but you know, at the end, it's raining, and he's like this. Freedom. We love it. It's absolutely ingrained in us, especially as Westerners, to fight for it. And I would say, at large, in humanity, it is what we long for. Lastly, during um, the horrors of slavery, there was something called the Underground Railroad. And one of the heroes of that time is a woman named Harriet Tubman. She was actually called the Moses of the Underground Railroad, and she is known to have led probably around 100 people to freedom from the horrors of slavery. But she, during this time, would often encounter people who wanted to go back to slavery. They would say, the life we're heading towards is perilous. We could die. At least if we go back and are captured and go back to slavery, at least we'll live. Oh, but Harriet Tubman, she was a woman, if there ever was one. And she had a revolver, and that revolver would be on her, and she would use it very sparingly, but oftentimes when this would happen, she would point that revolver at that person and say, you go on to freedom, or you die. <laughs> now, if you let me use that analogy, this is what Paul is doing. This is his metaphorical revolver. He is looking at the Galatians and saying, you do not know what's happening you either go on to freedom as in Christ alone, justified by the free grace alone in Jesus, or you will die. Recently, um, recently I, I found an article by Brad Pitt. Now in college, me and my friends, we really, we really loved Brad Pitt in Legends of the Fall. We would quote it all the time. Um, but I still do have a bit of a man crush on Brad Pitt. I think he's a good actor, okay? I think he's a good actor. I think he's, you know, he's a great guy. Um, but he recently went through rehabilitation for alcoholism and has recently made a public profession of Christianity. And uh, one of my roommates, former roommates in college, sent me an article and I read it and he has quoted this. He says, I never understood growing up with Christianity, the do's, the don'ts, the don't do this, do this. And that, to the modern mind, is what Christianity is. And that is not freedom, is it? That is bondage. 
And so we're wrestle, we are confronted with a tension. We are confronted with a question that begs an answer. Is the gospel freedom? Is Jesus, does Jesus offer freedom? Or is it a list of do's and don'ts in, a, in order to maybe see if your good deeds outweigh your bad deeds, if you are a nice person on this earth? In other words, that what is at stake here is freedom or bondage, and Paul knows it. The question that I'm asking is, do we know it? Is the gospel freedom? And if it is, what is that freedom, and how does it play out in our lives? That's what's at stake here, friends. So, before we answer and look at this, we're going to stand for the holy reading of God's word, and then we'll pray. So stand for the reading of God's holy word. Galatians 5, 1 through 15. For freedom, Christ has set you free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to, a y- again to a yoke of slavery. Look, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, Christ it will be of no advantage to you. I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he is obligated to keep the whole law. You are severed from Christ. You who would be justified by the law, you have fallen away from grace. For through the Spirit, by faith, We ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. You were running well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? This persuasion is not from him who calls you. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. I have confidence in the Lord that you will take no other view. And the one who is troubling you will bear the penalty, whoever he is. But if I, brothers, still preach circumcision... Why am I still being persecuted? In that case, the offense of the cross has been removed. I wish those who would unsettle you would emasculate themselves. For you were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you, de- if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Holy God, almighty, omniscient, omnipotent, God, you reign in our supreme. God, our highest thought of you is not, does not even come close to who you are. God, we need to be reminded of who we are talking to. I need to be reminded of who we are talking to, and I need to be We need to be reminded of who has given us this word and that it is true. Lord, impress on our hearts the reality of our freedom in Jesus, not in the law, not in moral performance, but in Jesus. God, it's all about Jesus. Lord, help us to believe this and to bring this down deep into our soul and hearts to where it starts to produce character change in our life. God, you are sovereign and in control of all things. Therefore, no one is here by accident. Lord, if there are people in this room that are discomforted in life by circumstances or illness, Lord, give them the peace that surpasses knowledge. Give them comfort. And if there are people who are too comfortable here, Lord, would you discomfort them? God, would you convict them of sin and unrighteousness and yet show them Jesus and how all of our freedom is found in him? Lord, I ask all of these things in Christ's name. Amen. You may be seated. If you're following along, my talk is, is segmented into two, to, 
two things, freedom from the law and then freedom to the law. I'll explain how those are not a contradiction. Freedom, what is it? We'll give some context. If you've been following along in Galatians, you'll know that what had happened was the Galatian church received the gospel from Paul and received it. They had not, they were not Jewish, but they were pagan. They did not, they, they, they worshiped false gods, um, false gods of the earth and the sky. The, most commentaries would say that because if you look back at uh, Galatians 4, maybe it's 3, I can't remember, but he'll talk about the elemental principles of the world. And so what had happened is, is that Galatians had received the gospel and they believed. They received Christ and their life started to change. They, they believed by faith that it was Jesus and Jesus alone that accomplished the work that we need to get right with God, that it's not in my moral performance, it's not in my good deeds outweighing my bad deeds, it's not in what I can sacrifice to the God of the sky or to Artemis or whatever it may be, whatever God that they were worshiping, but that it was by faith in Christ and it changed their life. And yet if you've been following along, you'll know what had happened, that Judaizers, false teachers, people who wanted to put them back in slavery of religion came in and they said, you have really not understood the message of the Bible, the message of Jesus, that Jesus is necessary, but you must be circumcised. You have not experienced full salvation. You need to go back to the law. You need to understand that observing the holidays, making the sacrifices, God's moral and spiritual, all of the laws that you need to, to obey in order to be right with God. And this, for Paul, was worth going to the mat for. Because Paul is claiming that they are freed from the law. All right, he says here, look, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, if you accept the law, Christ will be of no advantage to you. I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision, he is now ob obligated to keep the whole law. And Paul is going to drastic lengths and strong language to show the severity of what happens when someone adopts the law as a means of justification before God. He uses strong language. Stand firm, right? You were running well. Who hindered you? A little leaven leavens the whole lump. In other words, it's, it will ruin you. He even goes to strong lengths to say, I wish those who would unsettle you would emasculate themselves. <laughs> strong language to say the least. Paul is claiming they are freed from the law as a means to justify themselves before God. That the law, which is good, and this is what I, I believe that is a hard time for, for us um, who, who have not grown up Jewish, but understanding that oftentimes in our mind, it's like, well, let's throw out the law. But the law is good. The law is holy. The law was actually meant to show you a great need. The problem is not with the law. The problem is with us. And that's what we must realize, that the law, Romans 7, Paul's going to make this claim that the, that which is good aroused sin in me. So it's not as if the law must be thrown out, but the law is to, if looked at rightly, is a mirror to show in our own sin that we have a great moral inability to obey God, that we need a savior. Imagine a prisoner in a cell who has been in a cell his entire life, and then one day the warden walks up with the keys, and they jingle as he walks down the hall, and he puts those in, turns the key, the, the cell door slams shut or slams open and he says, you're free to go. Finally, freedom that he had never tasted. But then subsequently, he looks across the hall, sees an open cell, looks shiny, it's open, walks across the hallway, he 
he gets into a new cell and then slams the door shut. And that is what Paul is saying the law is. It is not an avenue in which we can, if we just obey rightly, if we're just moral enough, if we're just good enough, that we can get right with God. The law is a prison that if you rely on this, it will ruin you. Paul is screaming that Christ has set us free, not to go back into bondage, but to go into freedom. The freedom to rest, the freedom to love, the freedom to be loved by God in Jesus Christ. Paul is not saying that worshiping something other than Jesus is wrong. He's clearly said this in Romans 1, 1 through 30. He's gonna make the claim about we, we knew God existed, but we exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worship man-made images made in, uh, of animals and reptiles and things like of that nature. So he's not saying that worshiping something other than Christ is wrong, although he has said that. What Paul is saying here is that worshiping something in addition to Christ is just as bad, is just as bad. But what's the big deal? Um, I would say there's maybe some of you did not grow up in church like me, aren't familiar with the Bible. What is the big deal? We know that religion, religion, Christianity, gospel, whatever you want to call it, you may think falsely that it's just about making people nice. It's about making people do the right thing instead of the wrong thing. It's about people being good, upstanding citizens. So one person comes in and says, it's Jesus alone. And then the other person comes in and says, Jesus plus the law. The end is the same, just different means, right? No, (laughs) wrong, big time. For Paul, this is night and day. For Paul, what, what most concerned him was the reason why. Why will you adopt the law in circumcision? Why are you cut off? The why question was everything to Paul. Why are you obeying the law? He says it right here, right? If you go to four, you are severed from Christ. You would be justified by the law. We're all looking for justification in life, why we matter. But Paul says it's not there. This is the difference between night and day, between religion and the gospel, between man-centered religion and God's glory displayed in Christ's atoning work. For Paul, the reason why, the purpose of why you obey the law is everything. Why you obey God is everything. Your motive is of the utmost importance. Take, for instance, this. Two people, they wake up at seven o'clock. This probably sounds familiar with you if you're a Christian. You wanna read your Bible, right? Two people get up. They both wanna read their Bible. One person, is it possible for one person to get up to read their Bible in an effort simply to meet with God, to know more of his character, to know this God that has saved you, to become like him, to see his moral imperatives for our life, not out of earning, but because you love him and a whole nother person to get up out of seven to read their Bible, to earn his acceptance. To say, God, I read my Bible, therefore you owe me. Therefore you have to bless me today. See, this is not a matter of theological emphasis for Paul and for us today. This is two worldviews that will lead to two different types of thinking of view of God, two types of view of your neighbor, two opposite ends of the spectrum to opposite ends of the spectrum. You know, David Martin Lloyd-Jones was a, he was, I, some people would say Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones was a pastor in Wales and he was the Charles Spurgeon to the 20th century. Uh, he was what Charles Spurgeon was to, was to the 19th century to the 20th century. And, Char, and uh, David Martin Lloyd-Jones would just say one question and he would say, he would ask people often, are you a Christian? Are you a Christian? And he would get, certain, he would get an answer oftentimes and he knew that they had no idea what a Christian was and probably weren't one. 
And it was this, I'm working on it. I'm working on it. I'm getting there. And he knew right away, you do not understand the gospel. We are either free or a slave. It's that stark. It's that clear. We either set free from sin to love Christ or we are bound in sin and slaves to it. There is no middle ground. There is no working up to it because the gospel produces heart transformation. The best religion can do is bring moral reformation to make people nice, right? Make people nicer, but it will never change fundamentally and it will never teach you to supernaturally love God. It will always teach people to think salvation is a cooperative effort with Jesus to get salvation and it's not at all. My works, my deeds, they're necessary too. That worldview that I can earn my way to God with Jesus is dead in sin. It is not the gospel. C.S. Lewis has something to talk about niceness we talked about. Niceness can often be an illusion displaying a spiritual reality that is not there. Niceness, wholesome, integrated personality is an excellent thing. We must try by every medical, educational, economic, and political means in our power to produce a world where as many people as, as possible grow up nice. Just as we must try to produce a world where all have plenty to eat, but we must not suppose that even if succeeded in making everyone nice, we should have saved their souls. A world of nice people content in their own niceness, looking no further, turned away from God, would be just as desperately in need of salvation as a miserable world. It might even be more difficult to save. For mere improvement is not redemption, though redemption always improves people, even here and now and will, in the end, improve them to a degree we cannot yet imagine. The best the law can do is make you maybe nice, but the gospel transform your heart. The gospel transforms us to not only trust in Christ for our right standing, but it changes us supernaturally to now where we want the things that God wants and we want to obey him. Paul says this, simply put, Jesus is either all of our value or he is of no value. You cannot receive Christ by faith, which is I am not able to get right with God on my own. I need the atoning work of Christ and then subsequently adopt circumcision, which says, no, I can get right with Christ on my own. Which one is it? It cannot be both and it is not both. It is one, it is in the gospel. This is about two different views on God, which lead to polar opposite ends, like I said. One is about God, the other about man. One glorifies God, one glorifies man. One looks to God to be our only hope. The other looks to God as a business partner and salvation project. One causes you to love people. The other causes you to hate people. One produces humility. The other produces pride. One causes you to look at your neighbor and love them. The other causes you to look at your neighbor and, and look down on them. One produces freedom and one produces bondage. To believe that Paul is talking about is just a matter of theological emphasis. A difference in how, in how you approach God is wrong. Although they are different in how you approach God, one is right and one is wrong. The worldview that says we are able, because I'm a good person, Jesus, but it's plus my church attendance, it's me being a member of a church, it's me being a pastor, an elder, a good upstanding citizen. Anything on addition to Jesus Christ alone is a worldview that is dead in sin. That's what Paul is saying. In Psalms, the psalmist talks about how God's justice is like a bow and there's an arrow and it's wet, which means it's pulled back. And if God is just, and he is, then all those outside of Christ stand in the crosshairs of that arrow and he unleashes it. He can. And he's totally right to do that because God is holy and just. 
And that's why the law is not right. That's why the law cannot give you freedom, only bondage. Because the law, if you obey one of it, Paul says you're obligated to the entirety of it. And the purpose of all 613 or 611, depending on which branch you are in, is that they are forced to show you, according to the Bible, according to Paul, according to Jesus, that you need a fulfiller of that law and it's him and it's not you. That's the gospel. Because the gospel is about one thing, freedom. That God has purchased for us. That God has done what we could not do. He fulfilled the law perfectly in thought and in action. He took our sin on the cross. He substituted himself for us in exchange and gives us a record of righteousness which he could not earn. All the freedom in Jesus. Look at, I made a list of things that we're free from. Look at this. We are free from the curse of the law, Galatians 3.13. We are free from the curse of Adam. We are free from spiritual death. We are free from fear of death. We are free from condemnation both from God and from man. We are free from the power of sin. We are free from the authority of Satan. And we are free to inherit all that Christ has purchased for us. Has this shaped and changed your life? Is it shaping your life? Do you feel free? God's word, God's word is given to us, right? So that we may not just know something, but that we'll be changed by something that it would be brought down into our life and our heart that would display supernatural character change. Are you free? Here, take for instance, guilt. You know, one of the perplexing realities of life is guilt. Jean-Paul Sartre, who was a French existentialist, did not believe God, would say God is more of a creation of man than, than, you know, than we are of him. And uh, lived his whole life disproving God. Wrote things like the book Nausea. I don't know if you, <laughs> this probably falls in. I don't know if anyone who's read John Paul Sartre, maybe, maybe you have, maybe you haven't. Um, but he would just say this, that as an atheist, I'm perplexed because I know that there's no reason for guilt, yet I feel it. It haunts me. And I know that some of you in here feel that as if, but if God saw something I did yesterday, two years ago, wherever it may be, there is no way he could love me, and that is a lie. One of the great psychiatrists of the 20th century was a guy named Dr. Carl Menninger, and he would say, I could empty 70% of the beds in the psychiatric ward if I could get people to truly believe four words. Do you know what they are? Your sins are forgiven, and they are in Christ. They are not in the law, but they are in Christ. If you are wracked by guilt, the guilt and shame. Look to the cross. Look to the gospel. Now here's another way. Is there a distrust amongst God? Or is there a distrust, distrust when you think about God? I lead a CG and I learn a lot from the people in my CG. Um, but one guy in the community group just said something that was very profound and really related to the way I think I, some of us probably relate with God. But he said, I'm a Christian. I've loved Jesus. God has changed my life but I think I'm prone to believe that God looks at my life and balances, like, balances it like a scale. So something good happens. There's a promotion. My kid does something great. You know, there's something good happens. We make more money or whatever it may be. Well, it's just a matter of time before God brings sickness or cancer or something along those lines to balance out the scales, right? That thought is not of the Lord. That God, 
works actually all things for one end, and it's your good. Both, both something as blessing like promotion and as hard and painful as cancer could all be used for your good. That's the beauty of found in the gospel. It's, that's not found in the law. In the law, you will always wonder, am I good enough? Did I do, do a good enough genes? How good really is good enough? Well, you know, I said a couple curse words, but I went to church. Where am I at? Double or am I positive points spiritual or am I negative points spiritual? Which one is it? See, the religion produces anxiety, fear, and distrust amongst God. But the gospel will produce rest and peace and joy. Uh, Joy. Um, Christians have the utmost reason to be joy, to have joy, right? I understand that life, life is... Life is hard. We see that in Genesis 3, that life, there's a reality of sin. But if you're a Christian in here, I was so struck by, convicted by this, that we have the utmost reason to be joyful. We've been set free. Free. I believe that we need to show the world that. The joy of forgiveness of sin, the free grace of Jesus, this is why it is anathema to Paul and to us that we would be justified by the law because it undercuts the foundation of why we are forgiven in the first place. We cannot have it both ways. We cannot be wholly reliant on Jesus for forgiveness and payment of our debt plus reliant on our ability to obey. It's either all of Jesus or nothing. We are either relying on him for our justification and forgiveness or we are relying on moral rectitude. See, the gospel produces a freedom. John Wesley in the hymn, And Can It Be, he says this, <coughs> Long my imprisoned spirit lay, fast bound in sin in nature's night. Thine eye diffused a quickening ray. I woke the dungeon flamed with light. My chains fell off. My heart was free. I rose, went forth, followed thee. You see how the gospel is freedom? We're free from the law, but now we're free to the law. Well, hold on one second. How is that not a contradiction? Um, You may say, on one level, we're free from the law, but then you say, we're f- now I'm free to the law. Isn't that a contradiction? Which one is it? Are we obligated to keep the law or are we not? If you look at this, this text, you're gonna see strong emphasis that you are free from the law. Do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. He equates the law with slavery. But then he comes around right around at, at, at 13. He says, if you were called to freedom, brothers, do not only use your freedom as an opportunity to the flesh, but through love serve one another, for the whole law is fulfilled in one word. So which one is it? Well, are we obligated to obey the law? Yes, but in a totally different way. Verse three, he says, you who rely on the law are obligated to obey all of it. You who would be justified by the law. But in the Christ, in the gospel, Christians are now released from the law as a means of being saved because it is impossible to achieve, but because we are saved by sheer grace, we have the righteousness of Christ through the gospel, we're even more obligated to obey the law. Why? Because he set us free to now fully obey out of a heart, not, not to earn, but because we already have been justified. That now I want what God wants and I want to obey you. That's what the gospel produces in a heart. I know I, I said there's a misnomer in our day that freedom, you say, well, how is that freedom? <clears throat> How, I need to be free to choose what's right for me. Freedom is the throwing off of any restraints or impediments that would not allow me to choose what I want to choose. Let me show you how that's, that's wrong. Um, and I'm paraphrasing a book that I read by Tim Keller. But he basically says this, 
Freedom is not the ability to do whatsoever we desire. True freedom is to wholly want what I was built to do. It's to want the right thing. It's when I am really able to want the one thing that moves me into an environment that I need. Take, this is a trite example, but take a fish. If a fish could talk, I highly doubt he would say, in the name of absolute freedom, I won't want to be bound by just water. Throw me on the land, right? But what would happen to that fish? Amen, right there. He would die, right? Take a boat, for example. No one in the name of absolute freedom would take a boat and say, you know what? I am gonna throw off this restraining design that people say, and I'm gonna sail this sailboat down Kirkwood because I want to do that. Why? No, because it wasn't, it wasn't designed to do that. That would be a disgrace to the designer. But if you put that boat in water, that boy's gonna cut through that water depending on the day, right? Take marriage, for example. I remembered when I got married and I worked in Indianapolis and I remember there was, I was, worked for college ministry and I, I was, had some friends that I wanted to watch the game with and they were guys that I was just hanging out with and wanting to minister to. And I remember talking to my wife and it was at 6 p.m. right after she got off work. She was like, and I remember saying, hey babe, I'm just gonna go watch the, the Bears-Packers game at B-Dubs with some guys, you don't mind, right? And she goes, um, no, uh, I just got off work. How about you and I have dinner together? And I'm like, oh, yeah, that's right. Because it's a loss of freedom, right? If one person in marriage loses their freedom for the other, but the other does not, what's happening? Exploitation. Someone is being exploited. But if both people say, I give up my freedom for you. No, I give up my freedom for you. then what you have is an environment where love can really grow. So the idea that freedom is the absence of restrictions, no, it's the presence of the right ones. Take discipline in dieting, for example. I have a workout goal, right? I have a workout goal at the end of the month, and I am doing terrible at it. Awful. But what, what is dieting? What is working out? Dieting is the, is the res, it's the presence of restrictions in the moment for the greater freedom in the future, right? So you restrain freedom momentarily to get greater freedom of losing weight or feeling good or having more muscle or whatever it be. I just got back from a, from a vacation and I adopted the other way of freedom. So I ate whatever I want. And then I went on a run with one of my buddies and it took me 30 minutes to run 2.75 miles, right? What is the point? My point is, is that uh, freedom is the presence of the right restrictions. Let me show you how this, this pushes us out to obey the law. Titus 2, for the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. Here it is, training us. Grace trains us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, right? James 1.25 is gonna say, but the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, in NIV it says the law of freedom, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. Here's the linchpin, 2 Corinthians 5, 14 and 15. For the love of Christ controls us, right? In the, in the King James Version, the old King James, it says, for the love of Christ restraineth us. Because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. God calls us now through a regenerated heart to obey the law, not out of duty, but out of desire that we can fully glorify God and want what God wants. The mistake in the heresy is to say, well, 
you know, because God has taken care of all of it, it doesn't really matter how you live. So if God died on the cross for all sins, live the way you want to live. That's a heresy called antinomianism. And it's been plaguing the church since the dawn of the church. And it is, if someone were to adopt that view, they have not realized the gospel, they have not read God's word, and they don't understand the supernatural change of God's grace. Paul 6, 15, Romans 6, 15 through 18, Paul says this, what then? Are we to sin because we are not under law but under grace? By no means. Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are the slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness? But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed, and having been set free from sin, have become slaves of righteousness." See how the gospel produces us not to say, it doesn't matter how you live. The gospel produces us to obey, not to earn, but because we've already been justified. Let me show you another way. If you look at verse five and six, it says this, for through the spirit, by faith, we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. The hope of righteousness. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything but only faith working through love. What does that mean? The word hope there is an interesting word because the English, when I was looking at a couple commentators, they made the point that in the English, it does not depict, the word hope does not depict what it meant in the Greek or in the original language that Paul used. Here's how I say it. If I say, hope means uncertainty most of the time. If I say, um, you know, are the, are the Yankees gonna win the World Series? <laughs> and I, I say, I hope so. No, it means uncertainty, right? We don't know. We don't know. But if I say what, like if I were to use the way the Greek is to be used, and I say, are the Cardinals going to win the World Series? Well, I hope so. It means yes, right? It means certainty. <laughs> 0 and 2 is nothing for the, for the Redbirds. Uh, we'll probably lose. Here's my point. Read that the way it's most supposed to be written. For through the Spirit, by faith, we ourselves eagerly wait for the certainty of righteousness. That one day, not only will we be fully glorified in heaven, but that you have the righteousness of Christ today. And that will propel you not to earn justification from God, but because you already have it. You already have it. Think about that. God has already given you the record of righteousness that Christ attained for you if you are a Christian. That no amount of moral effort or failure will sway his approval from you. That will change your life. He says this, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision matters of anything, but only faith working through love. What does that mean? Circumcision, uncircumcision. What is he talking about here? Essentially what he's talking about is moral aptitude, doing good things, helping other people, good deeds. So you say, oh, circumcision would be like this. Well, I'm, I've done really good today. Therefore, God really loves me. I know God loves me because, you know, I helped this person cross the street. I gave so and such amount of money to this person. I'm, I'm a member of my church, whatever it may be. But, but Paul is saying, no, that, that does not sway God's favor for you. It's found in Christ. Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones talked about the Sermon on the Mount, which is Matthew 5 through 7, which is a characteristics of the fruit of a Christian. He says, you don't do these things, therefore you are a Christian. You are a Christian, therefore these things will be displayed in your life. Nor uncircumcision matters. What does he mean by that? 
I believe he was referring to paganism. In other words, we can translate it today that if you have a bad day, if you have a bad day, if you blow it in a day, and you think, man, there's no way. God's favor is definitely not on me now, right? God doesn't love me now because I've done this, because I've said this. But Paul is saying that you didn't earn it, therefore you can't unearn it. And, I'm, and God will use all of not only the good things, but the bad things for your good. Isn't that amazing? Freedom is worth fighting for. That's what we see here. Freedom is worth fighting for. We know that as a country. We know that here as Christians, it's worth sharing with others that their debt has been paid, the glorious freedom that is in Christ. But make no mistake, the gospel brings persecution. He even says it in verse 11. But if I, brothers, still preach circumcision, why am I still being persecuted? In that case, the offense of the cross has been removed. In other words, there's a direct link with persecution and the gospel being preached. Religion will always flatter the natural human heart. You can do it. Jesus plus your effort. Jesus plus something that you can do. Being a good person, going to church, being in Bible study. You can earn God's favor. That will, like, that will always be like fire, gasoline on fire to the human pride. But if you want to preach the gospel, buckle up because persecution will come. To preach that you cannot do it, that you will never be able to do it, you need a savior and it's not you. You need someone who obeyed the law fully for you and gives you that perfect record is often not well received. If, In other words, if you want to avoid persecution, preach religion. If you want to bring persecution, preach the truth. Preach the gospel. That's what Paul calls the gospel. Who hindered you from the truth? To the natural mind, the gospel is offensive. Um, my dad became a Christian probably within the last 10 years. I don't know when he started to see, but I know that he does see right now. But I, I, and for him, he was a financial advisor for 40 years. And the one thing he could not understand, the one thing that differentiated Christianity beyond any other worldview, philosophy, or religion is simply this. He always says this, the one thing that I needed that was of utmost valuable, that was utmost value to me, was free. It's a free gift. It changed his life. And recently he was sharing with a family member the gospel. He's not a Christian. And I remember him saying to his brother, he said, I love you. My life has been changed by Christ. I know I'm going to heaven. I want to see you in there with me. I want you to know Jesus. And his relative looked at him and said, how do you know you're going to heaven? Isn't that a little arrogant? Um, no, it's not arrogant. And it's not arrogant when you boast about somebody else's work. It's not arrogant when you boast about someone else who bought the ticket. It's not arrogant when you boast about the grace of Jesus that meets in the most vile of sinners like me. It's not arrogant. We don't boast in ourselves. We don't boast in our own moral rectitude. We boast and that Jesus has finished it all. All to him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain, yet he washed it. White as snow. And obeying him is not bondage. It is, it is freedom. It is freedom. That's why Jesus says, if the sun sets you free, you will be free indeed. I went to church in, in college that was great, preached the gospel, but it sang a hymn that I really didn't like at first. 
And 10 years later now, I would say this is one of the greatest hymns for me personally. And it was so simple. Probably some of you have heard it in Sunday school. Trust and obey, for there is no other way to be happy in Jesus, but to trust and obey. The freedom that there is to obey God's law. Here's why. Here's how. Um, God's word and God's law is never arbitrary. It's never just neutral. It's always for your good. In other words, it is always for your greater freedom to obey than not to obey. Is there freedom in lying? Is there freedom in lying? Just about even the smallest things to the biggest things. Is there freedom there? Why do you lie in the first place? Because you want justification, a false justification nonetheless, but you want to look justified. But you now you already have it in Jesus. You have it in Jesus. So therefore, we know that if, if I live a life disobedient to God's design for my life, not only will there be moral disintegration and lying, but my lies are going to catch up with me. Is there freedom in sexual promiscuity and adultery like the Ten Commandments ask? No. There's only bondage and pain eventually. Is there freedom in coveting your neighbor's goods? No. If there is a design, moral directive, and plan on how to live, then it's not arbitrary. It's actually in accord with how you should live because it's from our designer. In other words, going outside of the bounds will not be good for us. It will be moral disintegration. It will be bondage. Here's another example. I was reading a book and there was a story of a pastor who was meeting with a girl and she had been abused by her dad her entire life. And she looked at him and said, you know, I, I know my dad asked me, to, I know God asked me to forgive my dad, but I don't want to. And he looked at her and said, you know what, you're right. Like God, God does ask us and call us to forgive our enemies. But let me ask you a question. If the God of the Bible, if Jesus Christ, who gave up his freedom and therefore in, at the end of his life was literally pinned, bound, in bondage by three nails to a cross so that you could experience the freedom, don't you think that his directives and moral plan is not arbitrary? but actually for your good, for your freedom? See, the point is, is that if any one of us, and you know what it's like to be bitter, to, to stew, to be, for it to be so hard to forgive someone, the reality is that until that happens, we are in bondage to some degree, that we are in bondage to some degree, that the only way to truly be free is actually to forgive that person. We have freedom in Christ because Christ was bound on a cross, and he took our bondage and we receive his freedom. That is the gospel. And that's what Paul is talking about. Do you, do you experience that freedom? Or do you walk around the day wondering if God really does love you? If I'm free to do this or that? Let me end with a story. By a guy named John. About John Newton. John Newton was a pastor and minister in the 18th century. He wrote Amazing Grace and some other hymns that we have sung. John Newton's life was a hard life. He lost his mother at three. He was at sea at 11. This was back in about 1750. And he would then find himself going into the uh, African slave trade. And the biographer said that he was unable. He went into, it, it, it says he was eventually caught into what he, he said was the unspeakable atrocities of the African slave trade. On March 10th, in the midst of a near-death storm, he trusted in Christ and would abandon the slave trade, seeing it as sin, and go into ministry. 
He never wanted to forget the day that he became a follower of Christ, forgiven and loved. That above his mantle in his study, he wrote just one verse. It was Deuteronomy 15, 15. It just says this. And thou shalt remember that thou was a slave in the land of Egypt, but the Lord thy God redeemed thee. See, if only we remembered what we have been saved from and then saved to and who we are today, I believe the more eager we would be to live accordingly to who we really are, which are sons and daughters in Christ, set free. That freedom is yours today if you are in Christ. Before we move to the Lord's Supper, um, before we pray, let's move to the Lord's Supper. The Lord's Supper is a sacrament offered to believers. People who say, I have been freed from the bondage of sin and trust in Christ. I'm not perfect, but I'm trusting in his effort, in his cross, in his life. This is an opportunity to take Christ by faith if you are not a Christian. But if you are a Christian, we offer juice and wine. The wine is the, in the cup marked with twine. If you're not a Christian, we would encourage you to take this freedom, to really trust and repent by faith in Jesus. You can do that either alone if you'd like to talk to someone on what it means to be a Christian or how that happens, there will be prayer responders or pastors in the back who would love to chat with you. Let's, before we move into the Lord's Supper, let's pray. God, we thank you for your word, and we thank you that you really have set us free. Free from trying to earn it, free from being good in and of myself, free from wondering if you love us, free to love my neighbor which can only happen through loving you. God, help us to want what you want more deeply. Lord, help us to be set free from anxiety and the things that come with the law. Lord, help us to be salt and light into a world that is in bondage and help us to remind the world of the saving love of Jesus in Christ on the cross that he has set us free through him being pinned to a cross. God, I thank you for your word. Lord, I pray that it would help many people here. And if there's someone that is not a Christian here, God, that they will repent in my faith, trust in the freedom of Jesus. We ask all of this in Christ's name. Amen.